Well, tonight as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, I, I thought it would be fitting for us to look again into the Psalms and this time into Psalm 1. Psalm 1, if you would turn there in your Bibles, it's just such a a fitting place for us to go as we prepare our hearts for for many reasons. It is uh, arguably one of the, the most important psalms structurally in the Bible. Because as we look at this psalm, there are some components of it that, uh, uh, although it is well known to many of us, we, we may not have understood or realized. This first psalm really serves as the introduction to all of the psalms. They are not randomly placed, nor is anything in Scripture randomly placed, nor anything in our lives for that matter. And Psalm 1 is located here as a launching pad for all of the rest of the Psalms. Of course, we understand the Psalms are in the center of our Bibles, and this particular Psalm serves as, in many ways, a theme for all of the rest of Scripture. Because in this Psalm, we see contrasted the the lives of two different categories of individuals. And those two categories encompass everyone who has ever walked upon this planet. And it speaks to us. Some of the components of it are challenging for us because we would prefer to be on the other side of the camp. And yet this is what I hope and strive for tonight. That as we assess the psalm and consider some of the particulars about what's being spoken of, that we'll consider more fully our own hearts. Because that is what we're to do as we prepare for the Lord's table. We are to be introspective. We're to understand exactly how we fall short. And may I say, even seek the Lord to know how we fall short in ways that may as yet be unbeknownst to us. So some of this will be a challenging introspection for us to look at this evening. But I pray that as we do, it'll help us to seek greater purity in our lives, to seek greater holiness, and therein that Christ may be better honored. And that as we come to his table, we'll have more effectively looked at cleansing our own hearts as we prepare ourselves to partake of this holy ordinance which the Lord has called us to. In our text today, there are really two contrasts that come forward, a similar theme to what we've been seeing in our morning messages in the first sections of Hebrews. So let me go ahead and read through the entire psalm. I'll come back and share with you those two components, and we'll uh, consider this aspect uh, of the contrast of corruption as I've titled our text. Psalm 1 and verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." 
Praise God for his word. As we look into the contrasts in this psalm, the two contrasts that I see coming forward are first the contrasts of spirituality in verses 1 to 4. And we'll see these parallels that exist here. Uh, a very strong contrast focused on the man who is blessed and on the way that he is walking in righteousness. And we'll see that presented from a negative and positive point of view. And then a very brief contrast of spirituality for the wicked. And then our second point will be the contrast of judgment. And we will see those components of the wicked and their response and reaction to judgment as well as the righteous. So let's look together into this psalm and understand a bit more what the Lord would have for us as we consider this introduction to the psalms and this expression of all of Scripture and its theme of the righteous and the wicked. As the psalmist begins, the, and he talks about how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The, this aspect of, of walking in this man and the way that he is not to walk with the negative presentation is expressed for us in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 14 where we read, Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not proceed in the way of evil men. Well, we are very much acquainted with the way of evil men and the path of the wicked in our world. We are surrounded by it. We see it in every way. I was speaking with a gentleman on Saturday and we were talking about, he was a, a gentleman somewhat my senior, and we were speaking about how radically things have changed in our culture. He is uh, a gentleman, my sons were with me, and, and he had said uh, a curse word that by many standards in our day is not a curse word at all, but he quickly stopped and apologized because my boys were with me. And I said, and they, you know, acknowledged that they appreciated his uh, response and his consideration for such a term, although, although again, not anything of what we would hear normally. And we began speaking about how there was a time not too long ago where you wouldn't dare say any type of a curse word around a woman. And now on our TVs and on our movies, we see women saying the most profane of words that never would have been allowed before. So we don't have to go far to understand this way of the wicked and this path of sinners. For it is all about us and we have to be very careful indeed that we try to figure out how to flee from it. He says that the man is blessed who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Well, if we were to consider Psalm chapter 5 and verse 9, we have a reflection upon that counsel of the wicked. And it says there in Psalm 5 and 9, there is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. I'm, I'm reminded of Rehoboam in the Old Testament. Solomon had come and gone off the scene and although there was great peace and prosperity during his kingdom, he had also put a heavy tax upon the people of the land and burdened them financially with his taxes in order to run his kingdom which had expanded greater than at any time in Israel's history. 
And you'll recall that as he came together and as he was preparing to be anointed that Jeroboam came and said, you know, we would like to plead with you that you would acknowledge those of the ten northern tribes of Israel and that you would lighten the load. And the people came with Jeroboam and said, we have been afflicted under your father, but we would be grateful for a relief of that burden. And so we saw that uh, he went out and Rehoboam went out and he sought counsel from men. And he sought first the counsel of Solomon's counselors, the wise men of the nation. And they said to him, if you will loosen these people's burden and the weight which is upon them, they will lovingly serve you and they will be a part of you. And he also went and sought the counsel of his friends, his, his homies, and said, you know, what do you all think about what I ought to do here? And they said, no, 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 no. Show them that you are a real man, that your father was nothing, and that you are more powerful than him, and that you will show them who is in charge. And of course, he makes that strong statement about being stronger than his father and uh, uh, a very devastating really comment and, and not only the, the terms that he uses for indeed in the Hebrew they're quite vulgar but also in his attitude rejecting the counsel of the wise and taking the counsel of the wicked and this became the downfall of the kingdom this resulted in the split of the two northern tribes and uh, uh, or the two southern tribes Judah and Benjamin and the ten northern tribes and, and effectively became the downfall and we have that counsel which we are to seek. The scripture tells us that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. But those are godly counselors that it specifies. There are many times in our lives where we are seeking the Lord's will and desirous of what he would have for us. And it's not always an issue that is absolutely black and white. Although it is always spoken about in God's word, it is not always clear where we find that. It is at times like that that we must avoid the counsel of the wicked and seek godly men to guide us, to come alongside and ask them, I have these two paths laid out before me, what do you think makes the most sense? These are vital times. This is what we need as a church, and it is critical that we embark upon those considerations. Psalm 5 goes on in verse 10 and says, Hold them guilty, O God, by their own devices let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. It is a rebellion against God to give wicked counsel to those who are the Lord's children. If we were to go to Psalm chapter 10, there is an extended section that speaks to us about this wicked counsel. How important is it for us to understand that in the paths in which we walk, we are to walk alongside the guidance of godly men? Why is it vital that we have a wonderful core of men who serve our church in our deacons and in our elders? And that they are not just here to serve communion, but they are here for you all of the time. Here to minister to you, here to hear from you, here to guide you and to be your counselors. Would you not use them? Would you not take advantage of these that God has gifted? This is the path that we are to walk. 
and not that which is contrary and which follows the counsel of the wicked. So this is the, the first negative component of this contrast of spirituality. The second one in the second stanza of Psalm 1 is, nor stand in the path of sinners. We cannot have anything to do with those who are in sin. Psalm 17, 4 says, As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. We're not to stand in those paths or in those ways, in those roads. Do we not understand clearly where those roads lead? Why does the scripture talk about the broad way which leads to destruction? And many there are who are on it. But narrow is the path that leads to life. And few there are who find it. Beloved, it is not an easy path to walk that road of righteousness. Even as we are seeking it, we find ourselves wandering off to the side. Well, was that a good step for me to take? Am I getting a little out of bounds here in what I'm doing? We always have to assess that. We always have to consider where we are. Because we cannot use the world as a moral compass. For the many years this country had the blessing of being focused and seeking after the truths of the Lord. And yet we have continually veered and veered and veered astray. So we must abandon those paths, those paths of sinners, and we must not even stand on them. We must not walk in the counsel of the wicked. We must not stand in the path of the sinners, nor can we sit in the seat of scoffers. In Psalm 26 and verses 4 and 5, we understand a bit more about these components of the scoffers. And Psalm 26 and verse 4 says, I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. There's some strong statements made in the Psalms about hating those who do wickedness. And, and we think, well, the Lord has told us in his word that we are to love our enemy. And indeed we are. But that does not mean that we are to love the wickedness that is done by our enemy. And that can be especially difficult because sometimes that wickedness does not show its face in the manner of our enemy. Sometimes that wickedness shows its face in the manner of a family member who is astray who we desire to love, who we pray for, and who we seek that Christ would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. Do you have such people in your family? I do. And then all of a sudden, they turn around and they just backhand you. And you wonder, how can that happen? I, I, I'm, I'm praying for, I'm reaching out, I'm trying to be kind and embracing and comforting, and yet they simply... Act as a scoffer and a mocker of all that you know and all that you believe. Well, we can have nothing to do with these. And isn't it interesting, even in this first verse, in this negative component of the contrast of spirituality, focusing on what the righteous is not to do, that there is no component of our waking lives that is not covered. What else are we doing if we are not Walking, standing, or sitting. This pretty much covers it. All of our waking life is covered in this verse. These are the things which we must do. 
And now that he has given us the negative perspective, he turns and takes us to the idea of the positive component in verse 2. And he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Psalm 119, a, a, a very wonderful and extensive psalm that uh, covers all of the, the Hebrew alphabet in each of the stanzas throughout it. It's 22 different stanzas. And in verse 14 of Psalm 119, we read, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. He continues on in verse 16. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. And here in this wonderful expression of God's word is this delight that pours forth verse after verse. Psalm 119 and verse 35. Make me walk in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Beloved, I hope that that is the cry of your heart. That you want to be made to walk in the path of his commandments. Sometimes it's hard to be made to do something. And we will at times, or perhaps it's just me, we'll, we'll have the hackles kind of come up on our neck and you know, rear ourselves and brace. I, I, I don't want to be made to do something. Can you be a little like that, like me? We must not be that hard-hearted, stiff-necked, rebellious we must plead to the Lord that he would make us walk in his commandments. Because otherwise, left to our own devices, we will not. If you've come to the Lord later in life, you understand full well how easy it is not to. And if especially you have been one of those who the Lord has drawn later in life, and for those young people here who are still on the fence about whether they are ready to come to Christ, the longer you wait, the more that these Paths walking apart will draw you away. The longer you spend away from the delight of the law of the Lord, the easier it will be to reflect back into them. Your old nature will continue to rear its ugly head. Those sins of the past, they will continue to come back at you. You know, I, I thought for a long time that uh, I was so thankful after I got saved that I just, it was like I miraculously quit cursing. I was horrible at cussing. I got thrown out of kindergarten on the first day for cussing. I mean, that's pretty bad. And when I got saved, many years after kindergarten, the Lord took it away. And it was so wonderful because I had had, as my wife would say to our boys, a potty mouth. You know, and my grandma would get out, I don't know if any of you remember the old Fells Napa lye soap. You know, she'd wash the clothes and dishes with, and she'd open my mouth up and stick that big bar in there and close my jaw and pull it out. So you'd have some shavings on it, it was just like, the nastiest. But then it comes back. I mean, many years later, and, I, and, and, and I'm thinking, and, and thoughts are coming through my mind, and the, some of those vocabulary words, I'm like, what in the world? I had, I had no affinity, I had no connectivity to those after I was saved, and they come back. Well, the way that we stay away from them is by understanding that our delight must be in the law of the Lord, that we must continually be desirous of being pushed to follow His commandments. Uh, a, a wonderful text that speaks about this is in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. 
And in that text, as we see at the introduction of Joshua's ministry, just after they have uh, gone into the promised land, in Joshua 1.8, we see the Lord say to Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. What was the requirement for each of the kings of the Old Testament after they were anointed for Israel? They were to write, weren't they? Each one was to make a copy of the law, a copy of the Torah, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the scripture. And they were to read it each and every day. Why? Because that was the law. That was the way to righteousness. That was the path that led to a deeper walk with the Lord. Why do we call you? How many, how long have you been in church? How many times have you heard someone standing behind the sacred decks exhort you that you would read the word of the Lord every day? Why is it important? Because if you don't read it, you aren't going to know it. God is not going to supernaturally speak into your heart and mind every day, every sin that you commit against him. But if you are reading his word, if you are meditating on his law, it will continue to bathe over you and you will recognize these are things that I ought not be doing. And that must be how our life is. And it says in the second half of verse 2, And in his law he meditates day and night. We understand what that means. This is, this is a Hebrew phrase called a merism, day and night. It means at all times. It just doesn't mean once during the day and once when the sun goes down. Now I've got my day and night covered. All the time we meditate on them. All the time we are basking ourselves with scripture. Isn't it wonderful to think about the wonderful hymns that we sing? I mean, wasn't it great tonight? How, that, that hymn that we sang, I don't know that I've ever sang that hymn before. I mentioned to you when we bought these hymnals, and that was a, a Charles Wesley hymn, that there are hymns in there that your grandparents used to sing that haven't been in hymns for generations, but now they're back. It's wonderful to think about those words. Sometimes when we sing familiar hymns, we love them, but we don't think as much on them. Why is it important that we sing those hymns? Why is it important that you listen, listen to Christian music throughout the day? Because it washes God's word over your heart and your mind. If you're listening to secular music, you know, the Beatles were great and the Eagles and whatever, but you're not going to get much of a spiritual impact there. Or if you do, it's going to be pretty much negative, and I think we all know what I'm talking about. It's God's word that we must continue to bathe over us day and night. Verse 3, he says, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. In, in Psalm 92, we get a parallel to this tree planted by streams of water in verses 12 to 14 of, of Psalm 92. And it is so vital for us to understand that this is how our lives are to be. One as planted and nourished and continually growing in those rich waters. And in Psalm 92 and verse 12 we read, The righteous man will flourish like a palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. 
They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall, shall be full of sap and very green. What a beautiful picture. Uh, you know, I, I love to grow things. I, I love to plant roses. I'm so excited to get into our house because I, I love to, to put in some neat plants and some specially colored roses and to see them grow and to enjoy the aroma of those and to bring them in and put them on my wife's nightstand at some point. And, you know, it, it just, it's a treat for me. And how beautiful to think about the trees. How blessed we are here to see the trees. You know, when Karen and I drove into town and we came down through Jackson and came in, I think, on the 49 and it was about sunset and we're driving down and I'll tell you, it just seemed like we were driving down the highway to Eden. You got that huge big road, nobody on it, you know, two lanes each direction, massive wide shoulders all cut out and then that forest line with just uh, every variation and tone of green you can imagine in all of those trees. You know, isn't it wonderful to see those trees? I, I, I got to admit, I, I, I missed the Idaho trees when we went to California. There just weren't so many of them. I grew to love the palm trees, and when we came here and saw that there were palm trees, it was just, it was almost divine. Now, I, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, but hey, look in Ezekiel. What are the trees that are on the temple in the millennium? And back in Exodus, they are palm trees, so there you go. But this is how we are to be. We are those who are firmly planted. You know, in, in Idaho, there are a lot of the trees that will only grow by the, the canals and the, and the rivers, and they're not quite as abundant there as they are here. But you will notice a, a significant decrease, particularly in those that grow by the ditches as the water source grows down, because those trees get big and they're pulling all of the water out of the ditch. Beloved, that is what God is calling us to. We are to be pulling the water out of the ditch of God's word. We are to be drawing out from these streams of water that we are firmly planted by, that we would yield our fruit in a season. I love that text in Psalm 92 that talks about even in old age, we will bear fruit. Some of the most powerful witnesses and testimonies are the senior saints in a church. As those that are younger, they look to them and say, that's what I want to see. That's what I want to be. I want to be faithful at 85, at 90, at 92, at 95. I want to see the Lord's hand in my life like I see it in these men and women. And there's a fruitfulness in that because it is standing strong and it's growing and it's ministering to others. That is such a vital witness to our church. How can you pass that along to our younger generation? We must be able to grasp that because there is no replacing it. Our world has totally abandoned that, especially in this country. We have so marginalized our senior citizens. And worse in other countries where even euthanasia of the old because it may cost us too much money to care for them. Are you kidding me? It is an absolute abomination to God and to his word and to the logic of all of the wisdom that lies in those resources. We must make certain that we're tapped into that because it, it yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. You know, I've got to say, I had never seen deciduous trees that didn't drop their leaves in the winter. When I got here in January and was driving back and forth up Dauphin Island, there's these trees that all year long keep their leaves. I have never seen that in my whole life. You know, of course, in Idaho, it's, you know, snow's about 10 feet deep and it's about 20 below, so that might have something to do with it. 
But it's just incredible that all around us in nature, God gives us a picture of his word and tells us how we are to live and what our lives are to look like. And in whatever he does, he prospers. I'm, I'm taken back to the book of Genesis. Let me just share a few verses with you as we think of Genesis 39, back to Joseph's life. And in Genesis 39, we see some of these pictures uh, of uh, just a, a wonderful presentation of, of all that God is doing in Genesis 39 and verse 2, regarding again Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph so that he became a successful man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Verse 3, now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. We can even turn ahead after he had been removed because of the attack of, uh, of Potiphar's wife. And in verse 23 of chapter 39 in Genesis, the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him prosper. Talk about the inmates running the jail. I mean, he doesn't even look over what Joseph's doing. Because everything that Joseph did, the Lord made him prosper. Beloved, is that not the lives that we want to live? This is, this is the contrast of the spiritually righteous. And these are the lives that we want to have. And then we see in verse 4, the other side of the contrast of spirituality in the wicked. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Well, we understand what chaff is. Now, in an agrarian culture and society, which uh, particularly one that grows a lot of wheat, which was very similar to what we grew up in in Idaho because you couldn't grow a lot else, um, you recognize how the swathers would come through and when the wheat would be harvested, when the heads were ripe and, and ready to go. And of course then everything is electronic. But in that olden day, when that wheat would be cut and it, when it would, would be bunched and, stand, and stood in those sheaves and then the sheaves would be taken and the heads would be cut off and then they would be beaten with a rake and then thrown up as those threshing floors would be up on top of the knolls of the hills so that there would always be that gentle breeze coming across. And they would throw up that grain and the chaff would be blown away. Well, so it is for the wicked. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. The righteous are those who are to follow the law of the Lord, to be established, to be steadfast like a tree but the wicked will be removed from the earth. So this is the contrast of spirituality. And then in the last two verses, we see the contrast of judgment. In verse 5, Therefore the wicked, the wicked will not stand in judgment. Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 7 and 8 shows us a component of how the wicked will not stand in judgment. Isaiah chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace, or the throne of David over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. 
The Lord sends a message against Jacob and it falls on Israel and the people know it. That is Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart. The wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. They will not be able, but they will be those who are the prideful. They will be those who are not able to endure. When the judgment comes, beloved, all will stand before the Lord. Those who are saved will receive their blessings, will receive the gifts of the righteousness which they have inherited and the good works which they have done as Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we would walk in them. But the wicked will not stand. Nor, as the second half of verse 5 says, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. There is that which we will one day inherit, which all of the righteous of all time will be together. And it will be an amazing consideration, but there will no, be no place for the wicked in that. Their judgment will be removal from that. They will not be allowed entry. And verse 6 continues, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In John chapter 10 and verse 14, we understand a little bit of this contrast of the righteous and wicked as the Lord tells us about those who are the righteous. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows the ways in which we live. He is the one who is guiding us and directing us. But we must be continually seeking his face so that we might live in light of that truth. And as we mentioned earlier regarding Psalm 9, 5 and 6, the boastful will not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. The way of the wicked will perish. God has shown us these parallels, beloved, of these contrasts of spirituality and these contrasts of judgment so that we can understand the way in which we are to walk. And very clearly, the expression here and the emphasis is upon the righteous. And that must be what our lives reflect. But there is that component of wickedness as well. And it will rear its ugly head. And we must understand and continue to fight against that and seek ways in which we may better honor and glorify Christ in all that we would do in our lives. As we consider our preparation before the Lord's table this evening, I would ask if that is the heart that you come to the table with. Do you come recognizing that we must for all of our lives be striving for righteousness and fighting against wickedness? Because that is what God would have for us. He would have us understand the blessings of a life that brings him honor and glory. A life that continually reflects upon his word. A life that is one that is continually founded in the truths of scripture. And seeking to know them yet still more fully.